Father, we join together in prayer at the end of this, uh, your day, and we're grateful that we get to be here. We're grateful that you have shown great grace and mercy towards us, and we have studied that, we have learned of that, we have sung of that today, and we are encouraged, and we are strengthened, and we are helped. And Father, as we come to uh, the end of our day and we come to this time where we will be discussing this salvation and how it is that you have brought it about, brought it from plan in eternity to reality in our lives, and how you will take it all the way to glory, to a full and final and complete and glorious conclusion at that point. And we're humbled and we're grateful that you have redeemed us in this way. And I pray that even as we open your word and look at these passages to discuss uh, how it is you've um, arranged this, how you've planned it, how you've brought it about. I pray that you would do a work in our hearts by your spirit, that we would worship you and give you great thanks and praise for this salvation that is ours in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. All right. So if you would uh, remember how we what we discussed last week. We've been talking about uh, covenant theology, of course. That's nothing new to you. Thank you very much, Jamie. That's nothing new to you, um, at least that we have been discussing that. Uh, in our discussion, we've covered a lot of ground and a number of different messages that we've talked about, and I think it's important for us to do a little bit of review to catch us back up to speed and we discussed covenant theology as basically the structure uh, by which Scripture is given to us. The way the gospel is communicated to us, the way the gospel is structured, the way the Bible is structured is in a covenantal framework so that you have, um, from beginning to end, you have this substructure that ties it all together and makes sense of all of it, particularly as regards the gospel and our salvation. And so that's the nature of covenant theology. Sometimes, um, often, covenant theology is um, treated as if it were a, a hermeneutic or a lens that is placed over the top of Scripture that will make sense of or tries to arrange Scripture a particular way. But, but really, the idea is the structure is primary, and the structure is brought to bear on Scripture. And I think uh, we have seen, and, and I hope that we've come to believe that that's really not the case, that it's not something foisted upon or brought upon Scripture, as if it's like a special kind of decoder um, um, little glass thing that changes colors, and you read different words when you look through this particular kind of lens at the page of Scripture. But instead, as we look at Scripture, we see that, that there is covenantal language sometimes beneath the surface and sometimes poking out a little bit that is there in the text itself that shows us that, no, this is, this is intended by the authors, and more particularly, it's intended by the author of Scripture. You see, we need to keep in mind that Scripture has a number of authors, perhaps I don't know how many authors, perhaps 40 authors, I don't know. What's that? Yes, well, they're authors, they're just not the ultimate authors, right? So they are the ones who wrote down Scripture, 
But there is one overarching author, and I think that's the point Lou is trying to make, the distinction between those two that Scripture is given to us. It is a human book. It's written by humans, but not only humans. That you've got the divine author who has overseen all of Scripture and the giving of all of Scripture. That it is God Himself who has, who has inspired Scripture, and He has designed it. He has presented it in the way that He wants to, though He uses human authors to do that. And so... Uh, we need to remember that that is the case. We have this overarching uh, author as well as those who had pen in hand. Okay, And so, uh, as we have thought about this, as we've looked at uh, how it is that um, salvation is presented in these different passages, we've come to see that um, there, there's a particular structure that uh, we discussed, particularly in Romans chapter 5, that reveals to us how it is this salvation comes to us. And Paul's language there in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 and many other places in Scripture actually show us that there is uh, something going on with Adam, that Adam plays a particular role. He's not just the first man. He's not just the first one created. Um, he's not just a private individual, but actually he's a public figure, that he represents others. And in his representation of others, we looked at the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2 and even into 3, and then uh, elsewhere in Scripture, we see it that God, in, when He created Adam, made an arrangement with Adam that we have called a covenant. And, and He gave Adam a task to do, namely to not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of that fruit lest you die. Um, so he gave him that task, which on the flip side, the instruction was, obey me, and the reward for that would be the receiving of life. And of course, we know that that didn't play out well, and we called that something. What did we call that relationship? It has a number of different names, but what is the one that we've settled on uh, to describe that relationship, that covenantal relationship between God and Adam? What's that? I heard... Covenant of works, Right? And so we talked about the covenant of works. Whoops. Okay. Talked about the covenant of works, and that was between God and Adam. Remember, Adam, not as a private individual, but representing us. A federal head, he represents us. And <clears throat> had he obeyed, he and all of his posterity would have received life, would have received the reward for his obedience. And that is not what happened. Instead, he disobeyed, and he and all of his posterity receive death. Not the reward, but they receive the punishment. They receive death. And so that's what we inherit. And we looked at different passages, particularly Romans 5 is very explicit on this topic of what we inherit by virtue of the fact that when we were born, Adam represented us. And so his sin is counted as our sin. It's imputed to us. And we follow suit after Him. And we have that fallen nature and all of that. But even just by virtue of Him representing us, we have guilt because our covenant head has sinned and thus we inherit the guilt. Remember we talked about going to war with Antarctica. Okay? If the federal government declares war on Antarctica, you and I, American citizens, are at war with Antarctica. Okay? That's the covenant of works. And, and that's bad news. Right, because that, that covenant was, uh, was, was broken, that covenant was not uh, obeyed by our federal head, 
And so we inherit the consequences of that. But we talked about a second covenant that is related to it. Remember, we talked about a covenant that had to do with another coming, the one promised in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman who would come and essentially complete this covenant, but give us the reward for it. And that's Christ himself, of course, who comes and he obeys the Father at great expense to himself, obviously. He obeys the Father and, as well, he pays the penalty for our having broken this covenant in Adam. And then he gives us the reward for that. He gives us the benefit. He gives to all of those who have faith in him the benefit, the reward of that covenant having been kept. And we call that covenant the covenant of grace. All right. These two covenants we saw play out in history. We can look in history and read about the covenant of works. We see that God and Adam were in this arrangement and there were consequences from it. We see that uh, God and, uh, and the elect are in covenant in this case, and we see the rewards come to us in that. But we talked about a covenant that preceded these. Again, when we talk about preceding history, that doesn't really make sense, because, but we'll have to do that, right? We talked about a pre-temporal covenant, an arrangement made within the members of the Trinity, amongst the members of the Trinity, before time. And we called that one, we talked about it last week, and we're going to talk about it again this week. We called it the covenant of redemption. Okay, so here, this one is not playing out in time. This is pre-temporal. This is between the members of the Trinity. They come to this arrangement. They come to this agreement. They discuss, they plan, and then they execute in history and time. But here is pre-temporal. This is going on, as it were, a discussion between the members of the Trinity. And we uh, spent some time looking at that last week. We're going to do that as well this week. That is the basic structure, the basic structure of covenant theology. And there's a lot more to it that we're going to flesh out. We're going to see the implications of it, but um, I want us just to keep in mind that this one, these take place within time. Right? These two happen within time, and this one is pre-temporal. Okay. And this one gives structure to these. This is the working out in history of this plan. Okay. We spent some time last week. Uh, we glanced at a few passages, and we've looked a little bit more in depth at a number of passages. If you remember, we looked at uh, Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, uh, where God promised eternal life before the ages began. Before the ages began, and we asked the question, to whom did He promise eternal life if there was no one else existing besides Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? This promise was made, to whom did He promise it, etc., which pointed to a pre-temporal kind of uh, discussion. Likewise, in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, where Paul uses the same language, he says, He saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. I said last week that 
God doesn't have a plan B. He's sovereign. He's in control of all things. He is all wise. He has a plan A, and that's what he executes. We are looking at plan A. That's what we're discussing. That's the only one that comes to pass. It's one he made before the ages began. We also looked last week at Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. And these, um, I spent some time this week just kind of meditating on these particular passages because uh, for a lot of reasons, but one, they're just beautiful in depicting redemption, in depicting the gospel to us, how it works, how it is God saves sinners. And so Isaiah 53, 10 through 12, we looked at last week where we saw there a task is given and reward is paid for its completion. That's covenantal language. It was God's will for the son to be crushed, to be put to grief, for him to, take, uh, to make an offering for guilt so that many would be counted righteous because of their knowledge of him. That was the arrangement. That's what he came to do. And as a result of that work, the son will divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. You see, there's this great work to do, and we have the details given a little bit there of that redemptive work that he is to do, and we see that there's a reward given for that, that he receives reward in return for having completed that redemptive work. We saw that in that language there in Isaiah 53. And then we looked at uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, and really all through there, but particularly we looked at verses 1 through 5, where we have Jesus praying. Remember, right at the end of his ministry, he's about to go to the cross, and he is praying to the Father, and he says, my task is about to be completed. It's done. I've lived this life. I've done this ministry, and I'm going to the cross right now. My work is done. My task is complete. The work you gave me to do, my active obedience, my passive obedience, that work is done. So glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. Again, a task was given and a reward was expected for its completion. That's Jesus' language from John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer right at the end of His ministry. So you have this understanding that the Father had given Him a work to do, had sent Him to do this work, and when He's done that work, He can expect reward. That's a covenant, a covenant relationship. It's the reason for which Jesus was sent. And really, again and again, in the Gospel of John, you see that kind of language. I came not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. You see that again and again in that Gospel and uh, in many other places as well. But John uh, really lights on that subject. We also looked last week at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, very familiar to uh, pretty much everybody, that God the Son took on human flesh, humbled Himself in obedience, gave Himself as an offering for sin and death, and as a result, therefore, God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, right? So there's a, there's a task rendered, there's a, this work of redemption is done, and it involves His, his incarnation, and it involves Him humbling Himself, himself to obedience and, and even uh, death on a cross, right? All the way to that ex- extent, and therefore, God has highly exalted Him. There's a reward given to Jesus for the work that He has done. Now, I bring this up and go through these many passages for a couple of reasons. One, so that we can see that relationship is not just found in some 
a corner of Scripture we don't often read, perhaps. It's all over, and it's the nature of the relationship between Father and Son in regard to our own redemption. You see it again and again that the Son was sent with a task, and when He completes the task, He can expect reward from the Father. Well, how can He turn and, and, and say to the Father, my work is done, where's my reward? He can only do that if there was agreement made that that was going to be the pay, that there was going to be that exchange, that that was the agreement made in advance that I, uh, says the Son, will render this service and the Father will give this reward. That's based upon agreement beforehand. And we saw similarly very briefly in Luke chapter 22, verses 28 through 30, that Jesus speaks of this reward. It's His covenant grant of a kingdom from the Father. Remember, we, we looked at that uh, word very briefly. It's a, it's a grant given in a covenant arrangement, a covenant agreement, and that's the kingdom given from the Father to the Son. And He promises to His disciples that they likewise will partake of a covenantal grant of reward from the Father. We're talking about relationship based upon covenant, built right into Scripture itself. So we, we look at all of those, uh, and there are more we could look at, but, but I would encourage you, th- these aren't obscure passages. Isaiah 53, that's not a dark, uh, dusty corner of Scripture somewhere that you haven't read in 20 years. Right? This is Isaiah 53, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Your kids or your grandkids are memorizing it. Right? It's a passage we know. It's a passage that we've known for a long time. John 17. These are not dark corners of Scripture. These are, these are right in the heart of the communication of the gospel. And so we have seen in all these passages that there, there's evidence of an agreement made before the Father sent the Son between the members of the Trinity that included tasks for the Son to accomplish and reward for the Son to receive when He accomplishes that task. That's covenantal language. And that was made before the Son was sent into the world. Okay. Today, uh, we're going to do, in our remaining time, a, a, a short Bible study. We're going to look at two more passages that will spell out the same thing. And once again, these are not in uh, you know, somewhere in the minor prophets that you haven't cracked open in a while, right? These are right in the middle of the New Testament and its teaching. So open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to start reading in verse 7. Paul speaking. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone... What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. 
So I ask you not to lose heart, he continues. So the, what's going on here in Ephesians particularly has to do with the inclusion of the Gentiles into the saved. It's not just the Jews. It's the inclusion of the Gentiles to, to, together. That The dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. They've been made into one body. And those Gentiles who formerly were not citizens, they were formerly far off, have now been made citizens. This has huge impact on the relationship between Jew and Gentile. This has huge impact on our understanding of the nature of the church. But what I want us to see in this paragraph here is the plan. The language about, uh, about plan here that Paul is saying, this isn't a new idea. This wasn't out of left field. You know, God tried plan A and the wheels fell off. So now he's got plan B and here we are. No, he's saying you see, you see the, the Jewish church, largely Jewish church, and you see these Gentiles being folded in? That they're one? How can that be? Is this something new? It sure looks like something new. But Paul resorts to his understanding about the plan of God from eternity past. We might call it pre-temporal. Right? So we, we begin our emphasis there in verse 9. Paul's talking about his ministry, and he's, he's, he's been given the ministry to preach, to explain, to make known, to bring to light for everyone, verse 9. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God? So I want to notice some things as we walk along through here. First of all, it's called a plan. This is what God planned. Okay, This was His idea. This isn't just something cobbled together. This is His plan, which has been hidden for ages in God the Creator. That tells us the plan was made a long time ago. For ages, right? It's been hidden in God. It seems like that language is pointing very far back. Not to get too specific with what it says there, but God had a plan and He's had this plan, not just since recent times, since Jesus came on the scene and He was rejected. Not since Jesus came on the scene and rather than being accepted, He was crucified. And so now something different and new is happening. He's saying, no, this is a plan hidden in God for ages. This has been plan A. This has been what he's going to accomplish, what he is after. So the plan of the mystery, hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, verse 10, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He's giving the purpose for which he's doing this, a purpose for which God made this plan. And the purpose was to demonstrate the wisdom of God in bringing about the redemption of the church. Now, there's a lot in there. If you were to back up and you were to think about all of the history and all that's gone on to bring it about that Paul is writing to a largely Gentile church now from a Jewish Messiah. And all that has gone to play in that, that you, you see the, 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 the rejection uh, uh, by the, the Jews of their Messiah, of Jesus, which then drives the gospel, in a sense, to the Gentile world, Romans chapter 11, so that you see 
Gentiles being brought in and Jews being brought in as well so that now there is one body being redeemed in Christ that God is demonstrating His wisdom in bringing redemption to the church. That, that we never could have plotted that out. We wouldn't have planned it that way, but it was God's plan and it was His plan from long ago. And it was to show His incredible wisdom in bringing these two together that we don't have a Jewish church and a Gentile church. You have a church consisting of those from a Jewish and Gentile background. They've been united. They've been brought together. That dividing uh, wall of hostility has been broken down. And we who were on the outs are on the in. We are joined together in one body, uh, receiving the benefits that they receive. So the purpose of this plan is to show God's wisdom in bringing about the redemption of the church. And all of this was purposed from eternity and brought to completion or realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. There was a plan. The plan existed long ages ago. The plan was to show God's wisdom in redeeming a people from Jew and Gentile, forming them into one body. And this plan, he revealed, he brought to pass, he, he, he finalized, brings it to completion, realizes in Christ, in the work of Christ. So you see, there are hints of this plan where you're going to see redemption brought by the work of Christ. Redemption in time brought about by Christ in time, but the plan for it was made long ages ago. I might say it was made in eternity, okay? So you see a plan going on. That ought to encourage us that, uh, that God has a plan, and often we don't know what it is, but we get peeks at it in this uh, discussion right here, and this is one of the reasons it's so important for us to think about uh, covenant theology because we, we, we zoom out and get a broader picture of how salvation works and how God works, His relationship with us and his relationship with the world, how it plays out, is made clearer as we understand these covenants. Okay? Any questions on that passage before we move on to another one? The Ephesians 3 passage. How many times have I read it and not seen it? It's right there. It's right there. But there's this peak at this plan that God made, an eternal plan with great purpose. And somehow, uh, somehow I've been able to miss it. Others have been able to miss it. A plan with the purpose that he's bringing about. The plan was, was before time and it was executed in time and it results in our redemption. It results in the redemption of the body of Christ that consists of Jew and Gentile alike. All right, let's turn to another dark and dusty and forgotten corner of Scripture, Galatians 4. Galatians 4, we're going to look at 4 through 7. Again, this is Paul. 
starting in verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. We want to take note of a few things that uh, show up in this passage. The way it starts is noteworthy. When the fullness of time had come. What does that mean? The fullness of time. Now, I used to think, without having put a whole lot of thought into it, but my understanding was the fullness of time meant something like the stars were aligned. Everything just came together, right? All of the elements were in place. Uh, everything was just right when the, in the fullness of time. What do you think it means? When the fullness of time had come. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, yeah, when a plan had been made, and when that time arrived, this is what happened, the fullness of time. It wasn't, it wasn't just that um, world events happened to align finally. And so, so this, uh, this event could happen, Christ could come, redemption could happen, and all that kind of stuff. No, when the fullness of time, when the time that God had ordained to come, when he had, that time that He had planned to happen, when that time came, that's when these events happened. The fullness of time means the plan, at the planned time, at the right time, at the appointed time. These things happened, okay? It wasn't, it wasn't uh, it's just serendipitous. This was the plan of God. And when the fullness of time had come, what happened? God sent forth the Son. Right? We're getting used to this language, and of course, that, that concept is nothing new to us. The Father sending the Son, we know that. We've, we've read Scripture, we know that that's the case, but it's interesting when we think about how often that language is used we begin to understand that the Son was assigned and tasked by the Father to come and do that. That He was sent with a purpose. He was sent with a plan. He was sent to do a task. He was sent to do something. The Father didn't just, you know, shove the Son down there. <laughs> you know, like, you're it. You know, you go down, your turn. No, there was a plan. Well, if there's a plan and there's the Son being sent with a purpose, seems like we're talking about uh, something a little bit more intentional than just um, Jesus was the one who came and, and the Father was not the one who came. No, the Son was given a task by the Father. He was sent with a task. Well, let's look at this task. First of all, born of a woman. He became human, right? Became one of us. We're talking here about the incarnation. This task, this assignment that he was given included the incarnation. The, the Son takes upon himself humanity. Born under the law is the next aspect of the task. What does that mean? Born under the law. And I think we can understand it a little bit better when we look at the connecting, pay, uh, connecting uh, portion there after the comma to redeem those who were under the law. 
What law is being discussed here? I don't think it's the Mosaic law. If we were to read it as the Mosaic law, what we would be saying is he was born under the Mosaic law for the purpose of redeeming those who were under the Mosaic law. Now, is that true? Of course that's true. But I wasn't born under the Mosaic law. I want to be redeemed. All right? And so I think, I think he's talking about something different. I think he's talking about something closer to this. Born under this expectation of obedience to God. His uh, obedience to the Father is required of Him in order to redeem all of those who have been born in this relationship of required obedience to the Father. Who's that? Everybody. That's everybody. Right? And so I think, uh, I think this is referring to uh, this expectation that we as His uh, creatures and bound to Him in this covenant of works, we are uh, obligated, required to obey Him. And I think Jesus was born in that kind of relationship. I think there's more to it, uh, but, uh, but I think for now that, that'll be enough to say on that topic. He was born under the law for the purpose of redeeming those who are under the law. He went there as one of them to redeem them. Okay. to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Right? The purpose of His coming was to redeem those under the law, and the end goal of that redemption is that we would receive adoption as sons. Now, if we think of it in terms of this, covenant of works, covenant of grace, what is the relationship of the person who is uh, identified by this covenant? is, are they a son of God? No. They're a subject of God, and they're a rebel against God, right? They deserve judgment, right? What about the one who is related to God based upon this covenant? Is he a son of God? Yes, he's a son of God, right? He's an heir. This, this covenant of grace is developed very fully in Scripture, and I think that's what's going on in this passage right here. The end goal of those who are redeemed is that they receive adoption as sons. Remember the benefits of this having been fulfilled by Jesus given to all those who have faith in Christ. All of those who are in Christ receive those rewards. Right relationship with God. No longer rebels, but made sons. Or in the language of this passage, no longer slaves, but sons and heirs. Okay? And finally, we see the Spirit connected in this, right? Verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, I've said a number of times in regard to the covenant of redemption that this is primarily between the Father and the Son, but the Spirit is involved. And here we see a peek at the Spirit's involvement in this covenant, right? That the Spirit's role is that He is sent into the hearts of the redeemed, applying and securing this relationship between the newly minted sons and their father. Right? So the Spirit comes and secures that relationship. He brings that about. The Spirit of Christ is sent into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that we have a relationship with God that is not, that is not oh, God, our Creator, uh, whom we've offended, our Judge, but instead our relationship is different. 
He's still our creator. He's still judge, but we are his sons. We cry, Abba, Father, to him. And so that relationship is secured by the Spirit. The sons had formerly been slaves, but the fruit of this plan of God, this redemptive plan of God, is that they are freed from their slavery, and now they've been given the title of heir. So you are no longer a slave, verse 7, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Right? So we've been brought into this new relationship with the Father by the work of the Son and the Spirit. This is the fruit that comes right down to us in our lives. This is the plan in eternity, the plan in, a, in conversation, as it were, between Father, Son, and Spirit, and it bears fruit in my life so that I am, by the application, by the fulfillment of that plan, that covenant, I am made a child of God by faith in Christ. And that's how our redemption works. That's how salvation is structured in the Scripture. Any questions on Galatians 4 before we wrap it up? We've got just a few minutes left. Again, it's been there the whole time. God's plan, what God is accomplishing, our redemption, the involvement of Father, Son, and Spirit in bringing it about. The fact that it was a plan from Eternity passed, but it's brought into fruition in my life in the here and now. Such that I become an heir and <clears throat> the, 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 the fruition doesn't just happen in the here and now. It's not just for us in, in this life and then you die and, well, we'll have to work on something new for that point. No, you've become an heir and that heirship, that inheritance goes right into glory. and secures our relationship with God as our Father for all eternity, rooted in this pre-temporal, intra-Trinitarian covenant that we call the covenant of redemption. And so, in conclusion, the language and the imagery and the structure that the Bible uses to describe how and why sinful humans can be saved is the language and the imagery and the structure of covenant. From beginning to end, we see it all over the place and far from us placing it on top of Scripture. We are seeing that it shows itself all over in Scripture, that this is how Scripture is organized and this is how our salvation is brought about. And so understanding the nature of those covenantal relationships helps us understand the very nature of the salvation that we have. For example, <clears throat> listen to John chapter 6 and verse 37. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Now, those words ought to make more sense, perhaps, with a better grasp of this arrangement, of this theology. Those words ought to make better sense than they did before you understood this. Ask yourself, how can Jesus know for certain that all that the Father gives me will come to me. How can Jesus know that? Is it just because uh, He knows the future or the Father knows uh, the future of what people will do? That He observes decisions people will make? Well, no, it's not that because He says, the Father has given them to me. The source 
uh, of their choice is the Father, right? So the Father is the one who gives them to Him. The origin of their coming to the Father, uh, coming to Jesus, is because of something within the Father Himself. How can that be? Do you see the, do you see the arrangement? Do you see the discussion? That in eternity past, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit covenanted together to redeem a people. And when we understand that, we, we get a better understanding of Jesus' words in John 6 and, and elsewhere, and really all of Scripture, that the Father elected a people to redeem. And then the Father sent the Son into the world to do all of the necessary redemptive work to accomplish their redemption. So He, he elects the people to save, and He sends the Son to do the saving work. And finally, He sends the Holy Spirit to draw all of those people to the Son and apply that redemptive work to them. And that's the essence of how we can understand the, the Trinitarian work that is our salvation. That Father, Son, and Spirit work together to bring about, to bring to fruition this plan that they agreed upon in long ages ago. And it comes to fruition in our lives. It comes in, uh, in result in our own salvation because we were those who were given by the Father to the Son. We were the ones who were drawn by the Spirit to the Son. We were the ones who receive that Spirit in our hearts by which we cry, Abba, Father. We are the ones who receive the benefits of all of that redemptive work that Christ accomplished on our behalf. And so we can be saved. So we are saved. And so when we think about the relationship between these covenants, we think about the agreement between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not just some mental exercise. It has to do with your very salvation. It has to do with how it is and why it is that you and I, sinful though we are, have peace with God through Christ. And so, uh, I, hope, I hope I've been able to communicate and, and you've, you've caught the, the idea that this discussion of covenant theology is not just some uh, book that I have on my shelf or some, some subject that theologians like to discuss or debate on the internet. This has to do with how you and I have peace with God in Christ how you and I could be redeemed and are redeemed, how it is our salvation works, and how it is that we can see all of Scripture working this direction, explaining and bringing these things to the fore, that we would understand, that we would see, that we would praise God and worship Him ultimately because we are redeemed by His work, and it is ours by grace and through faith. So next week, uh, my intention is to um, move on to discuss uh, covenant theology in contrast to a couple of different things. So we'll talk about uh, uh, dispensationalism, how dispensationalism uh, contrasts with covenant theology as well. Uh, we will talk about a, a little bit about how Presbyterian covenant theology relates to Baptistic covenant theology. There are differences there that I want to lay out. We are Baptists. We believe in baptizing 
believers only, not believers and their infant children. That's the that's a Presbyterian model, that's a paedo-baptist model, and we don't believe that. And I want to lay out briefly the distinctions between uh, um, uh, Presbyterianism or, or paedo-baptism and our position on that topic. So that's what we hope to do next week. By the way, I handed out those cards. I never told you what they were for. So um, take, put it in your Bible. I think we did this last week. Put it in your Bible. Write down a question. If uh, tomorrow morning you're reading Scripture and you're thinking, wait a minute, he didn't say this. Or he said that and that was confusing or whatever. Write down that question on that card and bring it back. If you have one from last time, uh, bring it back as well. I'm accumulating those. I have two questions so far. I had three but answered one of them, so that's a challenge to you. Well, thank you guys for um, hanging with me through this. I know it's a little warm in here tonight. not sure why, but, uh, but I, what a blessing for us to be able to look at these different passages of Scripture, ones that we know well and see that there is this covenantal structure being revealed even in these well-known passages. Let's, let's pray. Father, as we have looked at Your Word uh, briefly, also briefly, we have seen that You and Your Son and the Holy Spirit of God planned together from eternity past how and why to redeem a sinful wretch like me. And I praise you that you had that conversation, that you had that agreement, that you arranged that covenant and put it into action in history to bring it about that our Savior Jesus actually did come, born of a woman born under the law, He really did take on human flesh. He really did become obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, to redeem us. And Father, we rejoice to see that that He is the one who has the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, we rejoice that you have drawn us by your Spirit to the Son, that we recognize Jesus as Lord gladly and joyfully and savingly in this life. Father, I pray that you would spur us on to take the message of the gospel to those around us who don't, who don't know you that they would not end up being ones who will recognize that Jesus is Lord only in eternity when they suffer the consequences of being rebels against Him. I pray that You would save sinners, that You would save sinners in Churchill County, that You would use us as those who take that message of the gospel to them, that You would draw many by Your Spirit to Your Son that they would be redeemed as well. So use us. Work in us and work through us, we pray. Work in our community. And above all, may you be glorified. May you be lifted up. And may we come to see more and more just how glorious you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.